us. We were meeting actually for the first time during COVID. We had been trying to meet for quite a while and we kept getting canceled. And so finally it worked for us to come together and meet in person for this board meeting. And so when we, when we scheduled it back in February, um, I wanted to right away try to get a cheap flight. And so I, I pre-booked, uh, got a really, really good deal on a sale. And, and we do this because as board members, we've kind of always... We've taken the, the stance that we don't want to expense this. We just kind of cover the cost ourselves. And so if you know, we can get cheap flights or whatever out there, then you know, all the power to us. So I got like a really good deal on a flight. And so Saturday night comes, um, I, you know, I, get up, I get up Sunday morning expecting to come home that day. And I, and I open up my email and I, and I see that I've got an email from Flair. And, and I noticed that... On Saturday, I was thinking, I'm like, why, why am I not getting the email to check in, like the, to, to check in for your flight? I never, I, I noted that on Saturday when I've ne- I haven't seen that email yet. So I get up Sunday morning and I see this email and then I see in, in all caps, cancelled. And I'm like, what? And so, then I, and so then I'm reading a little bit on the email and it says something about we've rebooked you and I'm like, rebooked me? So then I, I, they said, and we've attached your flight itinerary. So I open up the itinerary on the email, and it says, you're leaving on Sunday. And I'm like, well, what, what are they talking about? I'm leaving. Yeah, of course I'm leaving today. So then I, I was kind of perplexed for a couple seconds. Then I, I, I'm like, and I look, oh, they've booked me a week in advance. They somehow think I'm going to sit in Calgary for a week. And I'm like, what? So, you know, of course, then I get on the, the well, it, it wrecked my morning as far as, you know, I was hoping to have some time with the Lord, and instead I'm sitting on hold trying to talk to Flair, trying to figure, because I've never experienced this. I've never had this happen to me. So I'm trying to figure out, like, what am I going to do? I think they said something in the email, like, you might be open to some compensation. And then, and then I, I think I texted Jess at one point, and I'm like, um, you know, here's the deal. And, and her first response to me was like, no, no, you're joking. I'm like, no, I'm not joking. I'm like, I'm not coming home today. And uh, so then I'm looking for flights. Well, the cheapest flight I can find is over, is, well, 600 bucks. And I'm like, like 10 times the cost of what I had paid. And I'm like, this can't be happening. Like $600 one way. So then I'm like, well, Jess is like, well, could you fly to Edmonton? Like, you know, could you fly with Swoop, whatever? And so I'm looking at options. There's nothing. In fact, if I waited till Wednesday to fly out, it was $1,000. I'm like, how is this even possible? And then I, I, even, I checked, I even phoned Enterprise. I'm like, maybe I'll just rent a car and I'll drive home. Maybe that'll be cheaper. No, nope, that wasn't cheaper. So all that to say, um, I'm still battling it out, trying to get some compensation. Don't expect to get anything. Um, you know, the, the point of that was you, we, we all have an expectation of how things are going to go, right? I, I got up Sunday, last Sunday morning thinking, I'm going to have a relaxing morning, join this other church for their service, then we're going to make our way to Calgary, and it was all perfect. I'm going to get on the flight, and I'll be home by the evening. And everything has just changed. You know, now, big picture, really, I got home fine. You know, I'm here, right, except for um, some unexpected financial costs, it all worked out okay. So I've, I've titled this morning, The Jesus We May Not Expect, But the One We Need. Because it, it, it seems that 
By the way, it's, it's Palm Sunday, by the way. Did anyone, did you know that? I don't, did we say that this morning? It, it's Palm, so welcome to Palm Sunday, right? We, we celebrate this, this entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. And, and there was a lot of expectations around Jesus coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, on this triumphal entry. A lot of expectations. And we're going to look at some of those this morning. But when you start to dig into the accounts of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, you begin, there was not only a lot of expectations, there was a lot of assumptions being made about him and what he was there to do. And, and there had been this, you know, many expectations swirling around Jesus for a while, right? And it was all sort of coming, culminating in, in this entry into Jerusalem. It's interesting because all four Gospels carry this account. So, so every Gospel saw this as one of those important events to include. And it's fascinating too as you read them, how they all have subtle differences um, to, with the story. It's not, not that they contradict one another. They're all just coming at from different angles of, uh, to, to highlight what Jesus was doing uh, in coming into Jerusalem. So there's, there's all these expectations. There's all these preconceived notions, if you will, about Jesus. There's, there's a ton of a lack of understanding of actually what he was going to accomplish, what the people wanted him to accomplish. And so there's all these things going on. The, you know, even the projection of people's wants, right, and their desires. They're, they're projecting them onto Jesus. Like, this is what we want you to do for us, Jesus. So I'm going to read... I don't know, I, I picked Matthew. Um, so we're going to read Matthew's account of it. I'm going to draw from all four, though. Um, I may not reference them all, but I'm, I'm, I'm pulling from all of them as we go through today. So if you want to open up to Matthew 21, uh, I'll have it on the screen behind us, too. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the fowl of a donkey." The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's, that's that direct quote that we read out of Psalm 118 this morning. So they're, they're quoting Psalm 118 over Jesus. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So I want, I want to consider this morning, what were the people expecting? Who does Jesus come as? And how do we receive Jesus in light of this? And so one of the ways that we first see that the, the people, what they would have expected Jesus to come as is this powerful miracle 
worker. And right, right from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, miracles and healings were a significant part of Jesus' ministry. People were desperate for God's power. They were desperate for his presence. And people were constantly coming to Jesus to receive healing. It, it, was, just, it was something that you see throughout his public ministry. In, in fact, uh, in Mark 2, at the beginning, when Jesus is healing some, um, it says there in, in Mark 2 that, that the disciples come to him and they're like, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Like, the, the crowds were just flocking to Jesus. And that was when he said, no, look, I've got to go, I actually have ministry elsewhere. I'm not just meant to s- set up camp here and start a little revival. We're, we're moving on. Then in Mark 7, um, when, when Jesus is healing again, and it says there in Mark 7, the people were overwhelmed with amazement overwhelmed with amazement over what Jesus was doing. So miracles were part of Jesus' means to bring true freedom into the lives of people. There was the, the paralytic man, if you remember, in Mark 2. Um, there was the man born blind, and he was, he was being accused, and his parents were being accused of sin, and Jesus healed him. There was the boy with seizures that were caused by demons. And, and so all, a lot of the healings that Jesus was doing, they were frequently paired, actually, with demonic deliverance, with freedom from sin. Now, all of this caused significant issue with the religious leaders. It was this this thing that was building up with the leaders of the day, especially because Jesus kept, he had had this habit, it seemed, of frequently healing on the Sabbath, which was a big no-no and constantly got him in trouble. And it's almost like he liked to poke the religious leaders a little bit like, are you kidding me? But, but it's, it's constant through the Gospels. And so there was this reputation that Jesus was getting, both with the religious leaders and the people. And it was sort of like this, like he's this big miracle worker, healer guy that's going around, let's come to him, and he's going to do for us what we want. And then we see this latest miracle, perhaps the most shocking of all, as far as, at least as how the Gospels present it, and that is the raising of Lazarus, which... Uh, John says that many, as a result of that miracle, of that raising of the dead, many were coming to him and, and were spreading the word about that miracle to the people. In fact, the, in Luke's account of the triumphal entry, it says the whole crowd of disciples was joyfully praising God in loud voices over the miracles they had seen. So there was a lot of this fervor around Jesus. Now, there was also this underlying thread, though, of, of people kind of using Jesus for his miracle-working power, for his healings. You remember the 10 lepers that he heals, and only one comes back to thank him? And Jesus is like, where are the other nine? Like, they were just, no, we're good. Got our healing, thanks. And, and so, as the crowds followed Jesus, like, like there was... There was Many crowds that were following, you, you read it throughout the Gospels, they're following Jesus, they're listening to Jesus, they're coming to him for healing. Where were those people when Jesus was arrested and tried before the religious leaders? We don't hear of them. And I wonder if we can approach Jesus in strikingly similar ways, almost like he's some sort of genie. Right? If we approach him the right way with prayer and the right amount of faith, he'll pop out and he'll grant us the wishes that, that we want. 
I, I wonder sometimes of how, how do we view Jesus and what we want from him, right? Because it's a view that's pretty prevalent in the West. What is that? God's purpose is to make you happy, healthy, prosperous, problem-free. Amen to that. Let's get that, Jesus. That's awesome. I want that, Jesus. Bring him on. Right? We like that version of Jesus. That version of Jesus sells a lot of books. A lot of books. It's made a lot of multimillionaires. It's the one, the Jesus, that gives us what we want. The one who makes sure nothing bad happens to us. The one, maybe, who just, he gets us into heaven. I just want to get to heaven. If that's what Jesus came get me, I'm, I'm good with him. So, but what do we do when Scripture says that God's purpose in all things, through all things, everything that happens to you is to make you more like his son, to make you more like Jesus. It says in Romans 8 there, to conform you to the image of his son. That's, that's what God's working and doing. So who does, who does Jesus come as, right? The people want him as sort of this powerful miracle worker, this guy that'll set up revival meetings and let's, let's go. Jesus comes as the soul healer who brings wholeness for our brokenness. Yeah, he does, he does come. He does heal. That's amazing. Does he still heal today? Yes, he does. Absolutely. Jesus can still heal. He does. But his bigger mission was Luke 4, right, where Jesus says there, he quotes and he says from Isaiah, I have come to bring freedom for the prisoners, to set the oppressed free. Who is that? That's us. It's you. It's me. We're the prisoners. We're the oppressed. We're the ones that desperately need freedom. And so where people were satisfied, maybe with the physical and temporary miracles, they're all temporary, right? Lazarus was even going to die again. Jesus sees our need for true healing, for restoration and redemption from that sin that leaves us broken and cut off from the love of the Father. John is the one that highlights that impact of Lazarus' resurrection on the events, the very events of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. It says, it, it, it's interesting because John, in his account, he, he says although he knows that it wasn't until after Jesus' death and resurrection that his disciples came to realize the extent of what all this meant. They didn't know all that was going on. They, they only had a partial, maybe partial understanding of what Jesus was doing. It was after they went, the light bulb went on there. Oh, that's what Jesus was doing. Oh. John is, is the one the disciple who refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. And, and in his gospel and then in his subsequent New Testament letters, John's focus is, is so much around God's love and this desire that God has for relationship with us. It's, it's Jesus' invitation, right? He, he speaks it to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. He's, he's, not, he's not speaking to unbelievers there in Revelation 3. He's speaking to the church. And he's saying to the church, if you hear my voice, if you open the door, I will come in and I will eat with you. See, the thing is, humanity, just as a whole, we're, we are prone 
to want whatever is best in the here and now. Whatever is, is right before us, that's, that's really what we'll chase after. We want that. And Jesus, he sees the depth of our true need, that, that healing for that, that ache inside of our souls. You know, it's interesting, right? Because people, they were okay with Jesus' ministry for the most part. They were, they were good with his, his healing and his miracles when it didn't challenge too much of the status quo. Remember when he came and he healed the demon-possessed man, Legion, and then, and then he cast all the demons that, into the pigs, and the pigs that were the economic um, driver for those people in that region, they all, they all drowned. And the people are like, get out of our region, Jesus. We don't want you here. No, 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 we were good until you did that. Now, whoa, now you've gone too far. See, Jesus' mission began to deviate from the status quo and what was expected, there was significant resistance that was coming on him. It was just too uncomfortable. The people are, this is just too uncomfortable now. So what, what about us? How do we receive Jesus? Where, where is Jesus possibly coming into your life and upsetting your norms? Now, we, the, I've heard this, and I've said this before even. You know, we kind of talk about this like, what, 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 if, what would it be like if Jesus came into our world today? You ever thought about that? What would it be right now if Jesus came and appeared to the 21st century church? What would that be like? How would we handle Jesus? Now, on one sense, I get that, why we would kind of ponder that. But he is coming into your world every day. Jesus is coming into your world every single day. See, that view of if Jesus would come, it puts him somewhere out there. He's not somewhere out there. I mean, physically he is, but he's present here by his Holy Spirit. He's coming and wanting to dwell with us and make his home with us every single day. So what is Jesus wanting to do right now in us and where is he maybe upsetting our norms? Where we expect this and Jesus is like, well, actually, I'm this. Jesus desires to come and make his home with you. He desires to come and abide with you, it says in John 15. That, that word there, abide, or sometimes it's translated remain, it means to stay, it means to tarry. It's this, this I, I am going to be with you. I am going to set up shop with you in your life. That's Jesus' desire. He, he, Jesus is not here to be some sort of life coach for us, to simply provide, you know, life improvement recommendations and techniques, you know, to kind of give us a Pinterest page. That's not what Jesus is about. Jesus comes and invites us to follow him and that then puts the question before us, will I follow Jesus as Lord? Because that's then what it gets to. It, goes, it gets to, oh yeah, I like Jesus. Are you willing to follow him as Lord? Jesus' healing, that, that healing of the paralytic man in Mark 2, it was an absolute scandal you know why? Jesus went beyond the physical need. 
I mean, the friends that brought him there and lowered him through the roof. I mean, you see the desperation, either on the part of that man or on his friends. We don't know the whole story. We don't know the backstory. But he's desperate. And he gets before Jesus, and he just wants the healing. And Jesus is like, uh, your sins are forgiven. And people, the, 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 like, think about that. that. That was absolute blasphemy. What are you talking about, Jesus? Your sins are forgiven. You can't, only God can forgive sins. Yeah, and to prove it, I'm going to heal him now. But why did Jesus do that? We don't know the whole story. But obviously that man didn't just need physical healing. He needed wholeness from his brokenness. So how do we respond when Jesus says in our lives, I say, this is what I need. And Jesus says, well, this is what you really need. No, 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 Jesus, this is what I need. No, this is, this is how I'm coming to you. See, it's interesting in Matthew because he's, he notes that some of the people were seeing all this, what was going on as Jesus came into Jerusalem. And, and people asked, they said, who, who is this? And the crowd responds there in verse 11. Did you catch what they said? They said, this is Jesus the prophet. This is telling. They had been shouting Psalm 118 over Jesus. They, they had, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That, that, there's a big gap between prophet and Lord. You know what, you know what people, God's people have constantly done to prophets when they don't like what a prophet says? We just shut him off. We persecute them. We don't listen to them. Yeah, Jesus is a prophet. Jesus as Lord is very different. Okay, who else were people expecting? Well, they were expecting a majestic king. All four gospel accounts, they quote Psalm 118, 26, that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that, that was widely understood as speaking of the Messiah. In fact, in John's gospel, uh, he adds that they said, blessed is the coming king of Israel. It, it was clear what they, who they thought Jesus was and what they wanted him to come as. So in, in 167 BC, the Greek ruler Antichus Epiphanes, he ransacked the temple. And he, he came into the temple, he defiled it. In fact, he offered pigs on the altar. Uh, he set up prostitutes in parts of the temple and just, just defiled the temple. And so these, those events in 167 BC, they stirred up what's known as the Maccabean revolts, the Jewish response to all of that, where they were led by Jewish, Judas Maccabeus. And so in 164 BC, they kicked them out and they rededicated the temple and they did it with a great feast. And this is recorded actually in the second book of Maccabees and was etched, like, I don't think we can understand how much that memory and that event was etched into the life of the Jewish people and into the life of the temple because of how traumatic that was for the Jewish people. And so at that feast in 164 BC, when they had this big feast to rededicate it, they sang Hosanna. They waved palm branches and they looked forward to redemption. There was this stirring around Jesus with shouts of Hosanna, with waving of palm branches, 
There's lots of talk of what Jesus was going to come and do. And it was stirring up memories of the Maccabean revolts. Jesus is going to finally fulfill this, the Jewish state. He's going to come as our king. That's why they're, as they're shouting Hosanna over him, they're literally shouting, save us now. Give us salvation now. Jesus, give this to us. We want this. It's the literal meaning of Hosanna. And so this, this, there's this expectation that this king would come and he would establish a political reign and deliver the people from the oppression of the Romans. This, that, and that, this expectation, it had been brewing for 400 years. Ever since the, the, the God stopped speaking at the end of the Old Testament, there was this, just this, this fervor around what God was going to come and do through the Messiah. And so the response of the disciples and the people here was, was customary, actually, in, in welcoming a king. The spreading of the cloaks on the road, that was very customary. And, and there was this emotional fervor that's happening around this Jesus. Who, who is he? What's he going to do? He's coming in to deliver us. So some of you know, I haven't talked about this actually for a long time, but I, I continue to be a pretty big fan of the rock band U2. Uh, if you're in my basement, you'll, you'll see some evidence of that. Um, but in 2005, way back, uh, when Jess and I were like a newly married couple, we, we made our first trip to Chicago together for a U2 show. And... Uh, so when we got to Chicago, we had never been to Chicago before, and so we were kind of scoping out where the arena was, and so we, we found some parking, free parking a bit away, because, you know, Mennonites love free parking. But, but as we were driving around looking for free parking, I'm not kidding, um, we, we saw these, the one entrance to the, um, to the stadium, we saw all these people gathering, and I knew enough to know, I said, Jess, you know what that is? She's like, no, I'm like, those are people that are waiting for you 2s sound check. And so we, like, we were early enough, so we, we parked, and we, we got back there, and as we, we got there, there was just this, this fervor of, like, uh, U2 showing up right away. And, and they're, like, U2 fans are, like, there's the fanatics that are, like, crazy. Like, I don't know if you understand, there's some U2 fans that travel and follow them all around the world. I have no idea where they get their money. And so, but they're there. And, and they seem to kind of be in the know of what's happening. And so then there would be, there'd be vehicles that would pull up. And they all come separately in their own vehicle. And so uh, with every vehicle, it was like, hey, this might be them. And then it wasn't. But it was like this, like there was this excitement building. And then, and now, now the thing is, will they stop? Will they actually stop and get out? Well, they, they did. First, I don't know if it was, I think it was the edge first that pulled up. And he got out, and, and then he's actually, like, we were right there, so we're talking to him, and he's signing autographs, and it was like, it was like it's kind of one of those surreal moments, like, is this actually happening? And then, and then he left, and then a, a little while later, Bono came, and Bono got out, and had a really cool, he signed a guitar for a little girl, and, and had some chit-chat with us, and it was like, it was, it was like, but, but there was this emotional electricity that was present in the air there at that event, because people were so excited for these, these humans, but there was like, these guys are like a big deal, right? And so, and, and like I said, you two fans, like they're, they're nuts. I'm not one of them, but they're nuts. They're, they're crazy. We've experienced them a few times. <laughs> but you, you know, you wonder if the people want here 
Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and you wonder if the people want to almost will Jesus to embrace this kingship, right? Like, there's, there's this emotional electricity in the air in Jerusalem. Like, what is Jesus going to do? And, and, and can you imagine, like, the temptation for Jesus? Like, the people are all around him clamoring to make him king, and he could have in an instant, in an instant, he could have, he could have just leveled the Romans. Like, It was interesting because writing 30 years or so after this, the Jewish historian Josephus, he actually estimates that there was about 2.5 million people that came into Jerusalem every year for Passover. 2.5 million people in the first century. There's a lot, there was a lot of people that were milling around Jerusalem. And, and the thing is, and, and we'll come back to this here, but Jesus, he, he doesn't actually stop he doesn't stop this. He doesn't seek to stop any of this. He, in fact, he embraces it to a certain level. Even though he's not, he, clearly he's not aligning with the expectations of the people. So who, who does Jesus come as? If, if, I mean, in one sense, yes, he is coming as that king, but not as the people expected. So what, what was he coming as? And that as a, as a humble servant, as one riding on a donkey. This is the only time that we, in the Gospels, there's any mention of Jesus riding anything other than just walking. So it is, it is something really significant. It says in verse five there in Matthew, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle, lowly, and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So that's, that's taken from Zechariah 9. It speaks there in Zechariah 9 of this, this king coming as righteous and victorious, says in Zechariah. And, 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 and he goes on there in Zechariah 9, 10 and says, I will take away the war horses from Jerusalem. He will proclaim peace to the nation. See, the, the people were wanting a king that would ride on a war horse. That's what Judas Maccabeus did. He came in on a war horse. That's what they expected of this king. And Zechariah, it's, it's really interesting when you go through Zechariah because he's, he's prophesying about all this and he talks about the servant to come, a man called the branch and of the fountain that will be opened to the house of David to cleanse them of sin. Isn't, it's fascinating because Jesus speaks of himself as the vine. Jesus speaks of him, himself as the one who gives living water. Matthew 11 is one of the only times and I know I've mentioned this before, but it's one of the only times that Jesus actually describes himself. And he says there, I am meek and humble of heart. He says, take my ways, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus wasn't aligning with any of the expectations of the people. So how do, how do we receive Jesus? How, how, do we, how do we receive this humility of Jesus and the call to follow that example and his example in, in a me-first world. How do, how do we do that? Where, where so much of what we take in feeds, uh, feeds our human nature and this idea to think only of ourselves. I mean, it's constant. This is, just, this is, the, the, this is the pipe that flows constantly at us. It's about me, it's about me, it's about me, it's about me. Or, or how about when these attitudes make their way into the church? 
pride, arrogance, disregard for others, power grabs, seeking influence and control, favoring those that we like, but treating others as worthless because we don't like them. And so it doesn't matter how I treat them because I just don't like them. And, and, and the thing is, folks, at times, like, this can be so subtle, so subtle, but it's meant to inflict so much hurt. But we, we put a good face on when it counts. This, this is why we're, we are, we're so desperately in need of Jesus, because we know that this is reality. We know that this happens more and more and more of some of that is coming out in the wider evangelical church. It's shocking right now. And it happens all over. And, and, and clearly what we see is the world's values are not Jesus' values. They, they are diametrically opposed. This is what Paul writes to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 30. He says, brothers and sisters... Think of what you were called when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. They weren't the, they weren't the in crowd. They weren't the celebrities. They weren't popular. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, not because of ourselves. Who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Humility is at the core, the very core of a life surrendered to Jesus. And it is desperately hard for all of us. Which means that if we don't have the Holy Spirit at work, helping us, empowering us, working in our lives, we're, we're going we're gonna to struggle with this. And we do. Okay, the last thing that people were expecting. And that is a triumphant Messiah. So John's gospel, there's this, before this, there's this proclamation by Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, where again, there, there was, at the Feast of Tabernacles, there was this water-drawing ritual that happened every day as part of it um, that, that spoke of the pouring out of God's Spirit to come. It was sort of symbolic of what they expected God to do and what Jesus, or what, what the Father was going to do. And, and so Jesus stands up at the end of that feast, right? And this is where he stands up and he proclaims loudly. He says, you know, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, he says, rivers of living water will flow from within them. It's just this incredible picture that Jesus promises. And, and, it, and then you, right after that, it notes in John, he notes that the people began talking about could this be the Messiah? The people were starting to go, hey, what's going on with this guy? And, and, you know, because the promise of the Messiah 
along with him, this king coming to deliver Israel was this, this ongoing desire for the Jewish people. They continued to hope in this promise of God's deliverance for them. He's going to come. He's going to deliver us. He's going to set us free from all of our, our oppressors. Right? But, and this is the thing, though. The expectation of the Messiah had become so political. This coming king would come. He would establish the nation of Israel. He would remove all this oppression of the Romans. He'd set them free. And so this, this Messiah, this idea of the Messiah, was tied to, the fr- to freedom and prosperity for the people in, this, in the natural realm. This establishing of this earthly kingdom that was kind of going to usher in this, this golden age, if you will, for the Jewish people. And so... Again, it was, it's tied to lots of history, right? Because since the Maccabean revolt that had happened in 164, the palm branches had actually become symbolic of the Jewish state. In fact, they were, palm branches were imprinted on their coinage. When the Romans came in and they, and they printed their own coinage for the Jewish people, they still included the palm branches on the coins. I mean, it was clear that this was, this was a symbol of, of this desire for freedom, the laying of those branches before Jesus, these, they, they, were, they, were this, they were seen to be this acknowledgement that Jesus was going to usher in this freedom for them. It was clear the expectations they had. And so, it just, it, we get the sense as you read through the accounts that there was a fair number of people around that they had seen enough of the signs of Jesus, they had seen enough of the clues that they were pointing going, yeah, yeah this could be the Messiah. This could be him. And, and so ongoing, there was this ongoing sense, right, in the culture that they were looking for this, this Messiah. Why? Well, think about in, in the first century Roman world, m- many, many, many of the people, they lived under oppression. They lived in poverty. They, they did not have a great life in the natural realm. And they were looking to this Messiah to come and deliver them from all of this. The Roman Empire was not a great place for most people. And so Jesus' entry into Jerusalem has these Messiah, this Messiah fever coming at a, at a really high pitch. Could this be the time? Could this be the time? Jesus is finally, he's going to reveal himself. Like he's kind of been hinting at it. He's going to finally show himself for who he was. And see, and this is the thing, because the people were looking to Jesus. Jesus, we want you to bring political transformation to our world and to our society. And Jesus was doing something remarkably different. The kingdom that Jesus so often spoke of, it didn't begin with the Jewish religious leaders. It didn't start in the halls of government. No, no, no. Or in presidential palaces. It begins here. It begins here. In here, Jesus was saying, I'm coming to do soul transformation. I'm not, I'm not coming for political transformation. So maybe this, this maybe raises the question, because I was thinking about this, reading the accounts going, so then why did Jesus allow all of this? Like, why didn't Jesus just put a stop to it and go, hey, 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 whoa, whoa. you guys are really misguided. This is not what I'm doing. I'm not coming as your political messiah. I'm not coming as this, war ho- this king on a war horse. Like, why didn't he just shut it all down? He didn't. In fact, he invited the praises of the people. When, when the children were praising him and the, and the religious leaders got upset, 
He rebuked them. He said, you know, if they don't cry out, the people, the stones will. So clearly Jesus was inviting the praise. And you go, why? Why? I, th I think it's because Jesus wants to invite people to get close to him by whatever means. Because I think it's Jesus is saying, if they come close to me, yeah, there's going to be some that reject me. There was. There always was. There always is. But there's people that get close to Jesus, and once they see Jesus for who he is, they understand their need. So who does Jesus come as? If he doesn't come as this Messiah, this triumphant Messiah, who does he come as? He comes as the suffering Savior. The, the road that Jesus took into Jerusalem that he would have ridden, uh, it's not the one that I think has been pictured on, in many images that we kind of associate with the triumphal entry. It wasn't level ground. In fact, it's a very steep descent into Jerusalem. He rode from Bethany down this steep, steep descent. It's, it's a moving picture of Jesus coming in lowly, coming down, down this steep descent, given what he was about to accomplish. It's actually also, it's striking that it's very possibly the same route out of Jerusalem that David took, weeping as his son Absalom was planning this coup against him. And David, it says in 2 Samuel, that he went out weeping up. And it says actually that David went up. It's interesting, too, that upon arrival into Jerusalem, Luke notes that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Jesus knew what this week was going to be for him. He knew what it was going to bring. He knew how it was going to play out. And he wept, it says, over the peace that the people were seeking, that they so desperately needed, and yet were rejecting. People were wanting this nationalistic Messiah that would serve these nationalistic goals. Dealing with the brokenness of the human condition wasn't even on the radar of almost everyone. A Messiah who would come and would be condemned to a criminal's death cursed on a dying tree like we sang. I mean, that being crucified on a cross, that was, that was you are cursed. This didn't fit any, any narrative of the Messiah. Jesus' refusal then to defend himself before the religious leaders and the government leaders to not even open his mouth, that was just further evidence. He's a fraud. He's a rabbi that's lost his way. He's not anything. And yet, as Isaiah 53 says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do we even have a grid for this? How do we receive Jesus?
in light of all this. Yes, Jesus is coming as the triumphant Messiah. And he is going to come again on a white horse, it says in Revelation. But it's not going to be a war horse. In fact, Jesus has no need. He won't even have a sword. It says all he's going to do is speak with his mouth and it will be so. It is a tremendous picture of the power of Jesus. But in the meantime, Jesus calls us to embrace his way of sacrifice, his way of suffering, to follow his way of love, to follow his way of peace, mercy, and grace. And we're going to pay for it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was actually, uh, interestingly enough, it was the anniversary of his death yesterday. In 1945, his execution at the hands of the Nazis, but he urged followers of Jesus not to settle for cheap grace, but to embrace costly grace. And this is what he, how he defined it. He said, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has it is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. So this, this coming week and all the events that we're going to remember, all the events that we're going to in various ways mark and ponder, Jesus' arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his death, and his glorious resurrection. They invite us to respond to the good news. They invite us to make a decision, if you will, what we're going to do with this. Will we receive Jesus as the Lord of our lives? Not just as a good teacher, not just as a prophet, not just as a miracle worker, but as Lord. And then the subsequent question to that is, will we pursue his way as disciples? Will we be disciples of Jesus, apprentices to his way, wanting to become like him? And so I want to invite you this morning, if you haven't made the decision to follow Jesus, to surrender to him as Lord, I want to invite you this morning to do that. I want to invite you by praying with me. So we, I'm just going to stop. We're going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you have shown us the way to true life. Jesus, I believe that you are the way that you are the truth, and that you are the life, that all life is found in you. And Jesus, I admit my brokenness. I admit my need for forgiveness. And I admit my need for redemption. And so I ask you to forgive me my sins, to cleanse me from all unrighteousness, and Jesus, I receive you into my life as Lord. And I want to follow your way.
not my way, but your way. And we thank you, we embrace the promise as we do that as we repent. You are faithful to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you adopt us into your family as sons and daughters. And we are in you, Jesus. And we receive that. Amen. Let it be so. And if you, if you have received Jesus, and we're here and we, we have received Jesus, I want to put the question to us, are we making room and space in our lives to receive from Jesus? Are you spending time with Jesus? Are you learning at his feet, if you will? Are you, are you listening to him? Are you seeking his counsel? Are you cultivating disciplines in your life that help form you to be more like him? The Jesus who came was not the Jesus that was expected, but it was the Jesus that we all desperately need. Dave, why don't you come up and I'm gonna pray.